Hi everyone, welcome to this week's edition of Growth Everywhere, where we interview entrepreneurs and bring you business and personal growth tips. I'm your host, Eric Sue, and today we have Brenton Hayden, uh, founder and CEO of Renters Warehouse. Brenton, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Eric. Thanks for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Thanks for being on the show. So, Brenton, why don't you start off by giving us a little uh, information on your, on your background? Sure. Uh, you mentioned I'm the founder of a company called uh, Renters Warehouse. Now, I have several other businesses, but this is the... Uh, the main one for me. Uh, it's a professional landlord service. We help everyday homeowners and real estate investors to rent and manage their residential real estate. It's really that simple. However, we flipped property management on its head. Um, it's always been a mom and pop style business. It's been a spreadsheet and, and kind of a, an accountant's line of work. And we brought in technology. We brought in marketing know-how and we brought in um, you know, proven processes to really make it more efficient so that we could manage more properties for less money, which helps everyone. Um, and so we've, uh, we've grown into uh, quite a large professional landlord uh, in the country. In fact, we're the second largest professional landlord for another for a fee uh, in the country. And we have about $2.5 billion worth of residential rental real estate under our management, uh, just in Minnesota alone. Um, so, and that's where our headquarters is. That's where we've started. Uh, we started out as a property manager there, and now we've begun franchising. We've, uh, we've made some acquisitions in the software space. Um, we've opened up real estate brokerages. Uh, I'm also an angel investor in um, three software companies myself. Um, so, um, while much is related to real estate, not all of it is. Um, uh, but uh, uh, we've been doing this now since 2007. Uh, along the way, I picked up a partner and a best friend. His name is Ryan Marvin, uh, who is kind of, uh, he's a minority shareholder, but my right-hand man. Uh, and we've been doing most of this together. Nice. Cool. So, you know, walk, walk me through what your renter's warehouse. Let, so let's say I'm trying to, uh, you know, I'm trying to rent out a place. I mean, yeah. how does that work for me? Well, uh, typically our clients are property owners, mm -hmm. not a property renter. However, okay. with the renters quite a bit, and I'll, I'll talk to that in a second. Uh, you have a house you want to rent or maybe a house you can't sell or you lose too much if you did. Maybe you inherited a house from mom or dad or grandma or grandpa. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you've been relocated to take that dream job at Google or something. Um, point is, is you have a house to rent and you call a guy like me. Uh, my job is to tell you how much it should rent for, uh, how long we think it'll take, answer any questions you might have, talk about your risks, uh, overcome any objections you have, and talk to you about how easy and worry-free we can make uh, renting your property uh, out. Uh, and how profitable that can be. And then you just basically sign an agreement that says, Brenton, you're my landlord, and we take it from there. We'll market that property on 230 websites. Our average market time is about 14 days. Uh, we do all the showings. We do all the background checks. We prepare the leases. We, uh, we don't approve tenants. The client approves tenants, so you have accountability in the sense that you only get to approve the tenant. And then we warranty that tenant for nine full months. So any tenant we place in a property, it's like we warranty people. Uh, that homeowner knows that we placed a good tenant and if it goes bad or goes south, we'll get them a new one. Um, they can hire us just to find a tenant and then take over themselves. Or they can hire us to be the landlord as well where we'll manage the property, we'll collect the rent, we coordinate the maintenance, we enforce the lease provisions, we'll handle evictions as well. Uh, so we're, we're a landlord for hire. Whether you have a tiny condo or you're a big real estate investor like uh, say Invitation Homes who has 48,000 homes, we can help any type of real estate investor. However, we focus mainly on the everyday Joe. 90% of our business has uh, five or less properties in ownership. In fact, most are two or less. Uh, and so we're catering to blue collar, working stiffs, entrepreneurs, people just like you and I 
that have one or two pieces of real estate. Um, and frankly, here's an interesting fact. If you own five or more properties, you're in the top 1% of all real estate investors in America. Hmm. A lot of people don't realize that, that it, to acquire that many properties is very hard to do. In fact, there are federal limits that limit you to only allow to have four loans on investment properties if they're federally insured. I didn't know that. So there's a big, it's very challenging to get a lot of properties. So we come in and we help people um, outsource being a landlord. Got it. Okay, that's cool. So are you able to talk about you know number of revenues or number of customers today? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try and be as open as I can. Cool. What do you think? What uh, we want to talk revenue? Um, so uh, this year we'll do 15.5 million out of our Minneapolis uh, office. Um, we've been profitable every year we've been in business. In fact, I'm a retired 29 year old now. Uh, I work but one day a week, and I'm kind of the brand spokesperson. I get to talk with guys like you and promote and pump the tires of this this great company we've built. And to me, that's not a job anymore. Um, so that's a lot of fun. Um, the other companies, uh, the franchise company, we have 11 franchises. We hope to have 25 by the end of the year. Uh, my software company, it's a small company, and frankly, it's got three employees that just cater to my franchisees because we're trying to make the software uh, proprietary and not let the public have it, and we're trying to monetize it through our franchise network and other streams like affiliate marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a traditional real estate broker. It's got about six employees. Um, that'll do that'll do a million dollars this year. Um, and then... Um, I have a couple angel investment opportunities uh, that I've invested in a software company in San Francisco called 155. Ah, they're on the show. Uh, yeah, they've been on the show, David Hassel? Yes. Wonderful. Uh, obviously, you can understand why I invested with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a wonderful entrepreneur, uh, and I had the opportunity. I didn't even really I, – I spent about 15 minutes with him on the phone. I saw his, uh, his deck, and I said, how much do you need? I'm ready to invest in you. you got a great idea, and you're a great business owner. Um, I invested in another one called Onside Sports. Um, if you haven't talked to them yet, we should connect you. Uh, they're a fantasy sports betting application okay. uh, in the Android and iPhone market. So they're poised to legalize. When sports betting is legalized across the nation, they're poised to be the first app to do it. However, right now it's fantasy betting. You bet with stars and coins instead of real money. Uh, but you got live games, live Vegas odds. You can bet on a number of things, mostly sports. Uh, but that's called on-site sports. And then my software company, Rent Feeder, I shared with you um, those are my businesses now. Collectively, we're about a twenty million dollar business, or Brent, the the Brent and Hayden business is about twenty million dollars. Okay, got it. Cool. And how long? I mean, refresh my memory. How, when when did uh, Renters Warehouse start again? September of two thousand seven. Got it. Okay, cool. So it's a very small amount of time where to get to where you're at right now. So yeah, very impressive. Not been uh, long. Six and a half, seven years. Cool. So I saw an article on uh, Entrepreneur where it said uh, you wrote something about retiring at 27. Can you tell us about that article? Yeah. Um, from the time I started in business, I'd always told people that I was going to retire very early, age 27. Uh, and people laughed. Uh, they said, no way. How are you going to do that? Uh, you can never retire. I got that. You're, you're too, you work too hard. You, you, you're going to want to work. Um, and over the years, I heard all that, and I really didn't know what to say. Um, but that was my goal, and I was hell bent on it. Um, now, I was about seven months past my 27th birthday when I retired in October of last year. Um, it was I was sitting down in St. John's, uh, Virgin Islands, uh, or United States Virgin Islands down there, and I was on a two-week vacation with my wife, and um, I was sneaking away to work at the patio uh, on emails. And she came out and busted me and said, "What are you doing on here? We're supposed to be on vacation." 
I said, I got work to do. She's like, what do you got work to do? What, what work do you have to do? And uh, that has to be done today. And I, I really didn't answer it too well. I just, I was very attached to my business. And then she gave me the, the grill. You've been telling people you're going to retire and you're 27, you're 28. Uh, why aren't you retiring? And I, and I couldn't answer that either. And I got to thinking, I have all the right people in the place. Uh, I don't need to be there anymore. I'm not passionate about this line of work or staying the CEO anymore. Um, and I found out I was just scared. And then I also started to think, well, what if people are right? What if I can't retire? What if I'll just find something else to do? Um, or um, what does retirement mean to me? What, if I just don't go into work today, what will I do? And I thought about it, and um, I wanted to redefine retirement. To me, retirement is having the privilege to design each day as I see fit. So my biggest problem every day, other than Tuesdays, is to wake up each day and say, what am I going to do today? And I love that. That's retirement for me. I don't go out and play golf. Sometimes I go to work. Sometimes I'm out there investing in real estate or buying a restaurant franchise or, or working with an angel investor. But at least that's what I wanted to do that day and nothing made me or required me to do that day. Um, if I want to go on a month-long vacation, I can do that. Um, it also stems from the fact that I'm an atheist. I believe when you die, you're dead. You turn to dirt and, and uh, you've got one life to live. And I want to go out, uh, you know, going in broadside, banged up and used up and the last dollar spent and looking back and say that, man, that was great. That was a hell of a ride. And I, I spent every last penny I had and it was great. I did everything I wanted to do, no regrets. And the last thing I wanted to do was be in that position when I'm 50 or 60 or 70. And so now I'm 28. I get to sit back and um, decide each day. And to me, that was what uh, I wrote for Entrepreneur. And uh, I don't know if you know this, Yahoo.com picked it up the next day, and we had a million and a half views. They put it on their homepage. And uh, the support and uh, the outcry and the people that wanted to do exactly what I did uh, was awesome. Uh, people really resonated with what I was trying to accomplish, and I felt finally for once that I wasn't alone in that dream of retiring very, very early. And that there are a lot of people who are trying or want to do that or have done that. Um, so the, the, the point there is, is there are many people who have done what I've done. And I thought I was alone. I thought I was crazy. I thought I was outside outside thinking. But there are plenty of people who have done what I've done. And you don't need $100 million. In fact, I thought I needed $7 million to retire. Uh, now, I, I was able to, and fortunate enough to create more than that for myself. But um, frankly, you can live a great lifestyle of several hundred thousand dollars a year and do about anything you've ever wanted to do off that. You don't need a, that 100-foot yacht and the helicopter and the $10 million penthouse. You just don't. You can have a beautiful life with several million dollars for the rest of your life. And uh, I'm banking on that. Well, I'm putting in some investments out there too to, you know, perpetuate uh, those investments and, and make better. But uh, that's what that article was about. And um, I later wrote another one, uh, round two, how I got that far, uh, and and uh, how quickly it can happen for you, happen for me, and how it happened for others. I think it's still up on Entrepreneur.com. I encourage people to go check it out. Cool. We'll have to find that and put it in the resources for sure. Cool. So yeah, and I really like that definition. I never really thought of it that way, but I think that's exactly what most people are trying to do. So th yep. thanks for clarifying it for people. Um, so let's talk about you know let's, let's let's step back and talk about franchising for Renters Warehouse. So you know why franchising? Well, as a younger business, it's capital efficient. It allows other people to tap into most of the potential. You know, for example, I get a four and a half percent royalty, and I get uh, thirty five thousand dollars up front, and then I basically give my business plan my trademarks, my proven processes, my technology, my customer acquisition strategy, a business in a box. Everything you can imagine, if you want to start your own property management company, I've put in this fictitious box, and here you go, it's $35,000. Uh, 
and then I'll forever be with you as a partner in your business through royalties, 4.5% revenue share. Uh, and then my job is to make sure you grow and that you're healthy and that uh, you just go to work and do what you do best. I'll innovate. I'll come up with the new ideas. I'll work on a national branding platform. I'll keep us relevant. And then they get to just go to work and make, focus on what they do best, which is being a great landlord. So we've been doing um, we've been doing franchising now for three years. We'll have 25 offices by the end of the year. We hope to have 70, uh, 175 in the next five years. Uh, so we've just taken the gloves off and we've invested uh, a quarter of a million dollars into advertising this month alone wow. uh, and taking our franchise model to the next level. Uh, you'll find us on The Blaze uh, with Glenn Beck's TV program. He's been a longtime proponent and spokesperson for our business. Uh, we're hitting CNN and Fox Business News. We're hitting the real estate conventions. We're letting people know that we're open for business and we need real estate passionate entrepreneurs to help us expand nationwide. I just sold an office in uh, Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Tampa Bay, Florida, and Las Vegas, Nevada. The fact that Tampa Bay, Florida, and Las Vegas, Nevada were still available uh, is amazing. I mean, think about if you could have got in at Dunkin' Donuts and bought the Las Vegas rights, uh, or, or uh, Starbucks in uh, Los Angeles. Right? These things are opportunities. Um, we still have markets like all of New York, uh, all of Louisiana, all of uh, California is available. We still have top prime markets for our franchising opportunity where somebody could come out and start a professional landlord business. We'll teach them all about it. Um, so that's what we're doing now. We just doubled down on our staff. Uh, we just recruited a guy from Coca-Cola who was one of the franchise managers there, and he's now our president. Um, we've aligned with some celebrity spokespeople, Mike Golick from the Mike and Mike show on ESPN, mm. um, Glenn Beck, who's got his own te television network, um, um, to local celebrities, uh, athletes. Uh, we've really gotten a lot of clients that are really getting behind our brand, buying into our brand. We have people from X Magazine import exporters to Chinese novelty guy items to uh, real estate attorneys to real estate brokers um, that have bought a franchise and now are very successful all across the nation in our brand. And we're trying to, uh, we're trying to get further along with that way. Uh, why buy a franchise, in my opinion? I, I, as an entrepreneur, I start businesses, but I also buy franchises. I'm trying to bring a restaurant chain to Minnesota, my hometown, that uh, because they have it all worked out. They have a proven process, a proven concept. Uh, you have support from the founder. Um, you have a collective hive all working together to make a bigger brand. I really believe in franchising, and for what? To give them a tiny royalty? I do that all day to shape my learning curve down five years or to not go through the trials and tribulations of figuring everything out on my own. So I'm a big believer in franchising. We're opening corporate offices on, as well, but we're investing more in our franchise side than anything. And um, if I could uh, leave you with one thing, Eric, I really need more passionate entrepreneurs that like real estate so we can get it going. It's hard work, but it requires some prerequisites in our line of work. you got to be licensed in 38 states. Um, the other 12 states you don't need licensing in. So a lot of times we have to run into somebody who's got a real estate license. And then you need to have fifty dollars to $100,000 in available capital to get a business like this going. And if you have that uh, and you're passionate about it, you're willing to be a hands-on business owner, that's the ideal candidate for us. And that's who we're seeking out with that advertising I'm talking about. Wow. Okay, cool. So you, you have my interest because my mom's a real estate agent. Okay. <laughs> but, Where's uh, she located? 
She's in L. She's in L.A. And the thing is, here's the here's the thing. The area we grew up in, it's like all Asian people, and that's where all the Asian people just flow in. So sounds like you'd be a great fit. It's a great community. We can talk uh, about it after the show. But there we uh, go. There yeah, we go. but so my my understanding is, uh, fifty to hundred k all in. That's what it takes to start something like this, right? And that includes the thirty five to me. So frankly, uh, depending on if you were an L.A. franchisee, I'd want to see you have about seventy five to hundred k because that's a big market and it's going to be more expensive to do business. Now, uh, for Des Moines, Iowa, uh, now this candidate was very well qualified, but I would require less money uh, to be qualified there uh, because things are cheaper. Uh, cost of doing business will be cheaper. Your market is smaller. Um, so about 50000 for smaller markets, 100000 for larger markets. When I say 100, it's more like 85. Mm-hmm. Um, and that includes the 35K you're going to pay to me. The rest is like business startup capital, rent, security deposits, your prepaid, you know, some advertising, some salary money. Uh, and you can start this with one to two people. Uh, that's what I did. Uh, we're going to show you how to do it from a bootstrap capacity. Or if you're a millionaire and you want to start with 10 employees before you even got a client, we can show you how to do that as well. Um, and that's what's great about being with a franchise. We show you how to scale it. And when you have questions, you say, now what do I do here? Instead of having to be on your own or go and find a networking group that can try and give you perspective. Instead, you got a member of the family invested in your business who's going to give you the proper advice. Got it. Okay, cool. And how much does the the biggest franchise today make? Uh, right now, I have uh, a franchise that's three years old in Phoenix, Arizona. They'll do two and a half million dollars in revenue this year. Uh, they started like me with three thousand um, bucks, and he was an absentee pilot. Um, he's now the owner of four franchises. He owns Denver, he owns uh, Rochester, and he owns. Uh, Tucson, Arizona, and Phoenix, Arizona. So he bought one, and he loved it so much, and it's growing so well for him that he's bought three more since then, uh, and it's diversified himself into major markets. Wow. Okay. Cool. It sounds like this is a golden opportunity that people need to be getting in on. So, frankly, it's timing. Yeah. Um, I, there's, I think, property management is a great time to be in it right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, huge institutions are getting into the business. Uh, for example, Blackstone Capital, a mm-hmm. Chicago hedge fund, invested in. Invitation Homes gave them eight billion dollars to buy properties in two years. They bought forty-eight thousand homes, and those guess who they're using? They're using property management companies. Uh, Colony, American Homes for Now, all these multi-billion-dollar organizations have uh, organized and bought several hundred thousand homes. Banks, investment banks, big-time, uh, high-net-worth families are getting into significant real estate holdings because of the recession. As Warren Buffett says, the money's made in the doldrums. It's when you buy when nobody wants it. That's when you can make the real money. If you look at Warren Buffett's purchases of the railroad companies, when they're least valued, he buys them up at the bottom of, the, of the, their market value and takes them up again. Um, now, this is a great time to be a property manager because there's so much demand for us at the moment and there's not a, not a lot of uh, competitors. Uh, and two, uh, it's a great time with my company because I have all these top markets available and we're the fastest growing property management company in the United States of America for four consecutive years. Wow. So you not only get to team up with the, the rapid growth player, uh, we also still have really prime territories available where you can get established in top markets that otherwise would not be available. Got it. So once someone claims like LA, for example, is that just gone? Yeah, we'll give you a million population actually. Mm-hmm. So there might be a couple franchisees potentially in LA. Um, but that's that's kind of anti the way we want to do business. Mm-hmm. Um, my competitors will sell you a one mile radius and say that's your territory. That's nothing. Uh, we give you a one million population. We have a software that shows you how far that goes out from your location. Now, LA is highly dense, but we can shape a territory. You can buy additional territory. But I work, for example, in 
uh, seven counties of Minneapolis-St. Paul, and that's only a 1.4 million population. And out of that small market, in a market like Minnesota that's not exactly known for real estate investing, I'm one of the biggest property managers in the country in six and a half years' time. So if I can do it in Minnesota, imagine what somebody could do in a prime market like L.A., Las Vegas, Miami, high density, lots of rental property. In fact, the rental saturation rate in Minnesota is 28%. That means 28% of homes are rental properties. Mm -hmm. uh, L.A., 44%. Miami, 48%. That means almost one in two people rent in Miami or, or, or California. As a result, property managers are in significant demand, and your only competition are real estate agents that are moonlight doing it, frankly. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay, so let's, you know, starting this whole franchising thing, I mean, it's a whole set of new struggles versus like starting a, you know, a new business, right? So I mean, what are some, what's like one big struggle you had to face with, you know, starting this franchise thing? There's a reason why franchising is not done by every business. It's cost prohibitive. Uh, it cost me $350,000 to become a franchisable business. It also is highly scrutinized and governed by the Securities Exchange Commission. In fact, you have to, you have to register in about 40 states in the United States to even uh, – um, be able to sell franchises there. There are things like franchise taxes in California that I have to pay tax on my royalties just because they come from California. Uh, so it's very expensive uh, initially to become a franchisor and then it takes a long time to recruit the money um, through $30,000 investments and things like that. So um, it's cost prohibitive. I had to create a 166 page franchise agreement that covered, you know, I had to think about what all could go wrong. And what all am I going to do and what do I expect everybody to do for me and put it all in a contract. Because when somebody goes into business and gives me $35,000, we need to have everything worked out on paper. And so there's a very lengthy contract between us all. You know exactly where you stand, where I stand, what we owe each other and what the rules are. Because we've got to protect the brand as well. Uh, make sure we don't have a rogue operator ruining it for everybody. So it's cost prohibitive and then every year you have to register in the states and that's you know fifteen dollars to $20,000 a year to continue registering in states. Um, and sometimes each state wants you to very modify your agreements to match their laws. That's a ton of legal fees every year. Um, and then the marketing of franchising. Right now, to be a great salesperson as a franchisor, you'll sell 1% of the leads you get. 1%. So for every 100 phone calls you make, one guy is going to buy a franchise. Uh, and these are people who call you or email you and say, you know, if you had 100 people off your podcast tomorrow, email me about a franchise opportunity, very likely only one will buy one. Mm -hmm. So it's a very lot of work to get a deal. Um, but it's a long-term play. Um, and if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. That's why it's not easy. Uh, it's hard to do. It takes money. Uh, but now that we're here, we're really we're, we're three years into it now. We're, we're getting established as a franchisor. Uh, and frankly, I wouldn't have been so excited about people investing in us year one. But now that we have three years of practice and we've really mastered it before we went to market in an aggressive way like we are now, we're really ready. Uh, this is the right time. We're taking the gloves off. and um, So backing it up, franchising is very costly. Uh, up front and ongoing, that's been very prohibitive. And then now you have to support your offices. So you need to have support specialists. Uh, you need to have uh, training people that show you how to train you in on how to become a property manager. And we have to train you in in about two weeks. So we have to tell you everything you need to know in a business in about two weeks. So we have to have a robust training program. And then you're going to have questions for a long time after that. And we're going to support you. So you have staff and stuff uh, that are going to help you support those franchisees, including myself. So it's a, it's a lot of money to get into that space. However, it's a lot more to expand 
you know, opening a corporate office each time, that's going to cost you significantly more than, say, setting up a franchise model and then selling franchises out as a business owner. Furthermore, I really like the idea of I'm an angel investor. I want to have people invest in things. Well, I want them to invest in my business. I know it to be a good investment. And so I kind of get to do best of both worlds. Oftentimes, a franchisee will come to me and say, you know, I'm ready to do this, but I only have 50000 and I'd like to be able to have more money in the coffers. Well, as an angel investor, I'll finance them. I'll say, why don't you, uh, I'll waive half the franchise fee and you can pay me back later. Uh, or I'll finance some of their operation costs. So I'm investing in my own businesses as well. Uh, you need to be prepared as a franchisor to uh, be financially viable because if you don't have enough money going into franchising, you're not going to make it because it's a long-term play. Got it. Cool. So would it be fair to say, you know, <clears throat> out of that 100K, you know, if you wanted to be perfectly safe, would you move that up a little? And if you were to move that number up a little, what would it be? Um, I think you can get started as low as $38,000 with me. And I think at the most I really ne you need is about 85000 Okay. Um, so frankly... Uh, if you had, if you came to me and said I got ten million to put in this thing, I'd say, well, all that's going to do is you're going to have a bigger marketing budget, and you're going to have a little more employees, and you're going to have a little more cushion. Mm -hmm. um, but every one of my franchisees, and I can say this because it's a fact, um, has been profitable inside the first year, meaning net positive. Wow. Um, and every one of my franchisees in my network is willing to talk to prospective franchisees about how great it's going for them. As a franchisor, I can't give you projections, because um, that would induce you into buying a franchise. So I'm not allowed to, you know, in, and that's another thing. When you sell a franchise, you really can't sell. They take selling out of it. You can only talk strictly factual because the government says it's too easy to say, Eric, I, I'm a millionaire in seven years. I did it. You can do it to buy a franchise right now and you'll become a millionaire. And you might get, well, that's great. I'm ready. Well, they want to prevent that from happening. People being persuaded and making an impulse buy uh, or being told things that aren't necessarily uh, factually realistic. So they really take away the ability to sell. And so the best thing I have as my sales approach is having really happy franchisees. And so when they say, well, how are people doing? When can I make my money back? I can't answer that, but I'd encourage you to call every one of my franchisees and ask them that question. They can answer that. And they'll tell you from real life experience. Some of these people have been in business a year. Some of them have been in business three years. They'll tell you a different spectrum of uh, success. And I encourage you to talk to them. Got it. All right. Cool. It's very impressive. Um Let's talk a little bit about customer acquisition. So, so what's working for you guys today? Radio. Radio is the old medium a lot of people forget about, but it's really affordable. Uh, I'm getting great results from a, a cost per lead and a cost per sale standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, it's What I didn't realize at first is the amount of branding radio does for you as well. I, I separate things, advertising and branding. Advertising, lead generation, direct response, you know, people are coming to your, they're responding to an ad. Branding is like what big companies do when they just put their logo up on a billboard and says nothing. You know, Target, McDonald's, they do a lot of branding, just trying to keep you thinking about them. You already know they exist. Well, people don't know I exist necessarily. At least in Minnesota they do, but not all across the nation. So uh, radio helps you educate the audience of, in 60 seconds or 30 seconds. You can hit them 15 times a day. You can do that for as low as twenty-five to a hundred dollars a spot, and uh, uh, frankly, uh, it's been a really great for my business. And we're going to continue using that. Um, the quicker you can get to TV as well and afford that, I think that is uh, working very well for us as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, you definitely got to be astute uh, with respect to pay-per-click and search engine optimization. You got to have a great website. You got to have great SEO. 
and you got to have a great pay-per-click campaign because people nowadays um, they when they they'll be thinking about something you know I want to rent my house they go to Google rent rent my house California and they're going to look for a property management company or somebody that caters to them there you need to be popping up there and if you're not you're losing out on a significant amount of business so those three things uh, digital media radio and television are working for me and I would put them in this order. Uh, radio number one, digital number two, and TV number three. Yep, and I think the key takeaway here is a lot of people, and you know, there's a lot of tech people that watch this. People are saying, you know, this medium is dead, this medium is dead. I think the key thing is you got to be willing to, you got to be have an open mind and be willing to test these other old mediums because yep. you never know what's going to happen. It takes money to make money too, Eric. Mm -hmm. uh, if the ad's expensive, there's probably a reason why it's expensive. It works. There's a huge audience. Uh, in in advertising, they charge per impression. Um, if a magazine has uh, 100,000 subscribers, they're charging you that ad of when you flip the page, 100,000 people are going to look at that ad. That's what you're being charged for. So when the ad is very high, assuming you know, you can safely assume that that's probably a pretty successful ad, at least for most people. Mm -hmm. Now, it may not be for your business depending on the line of work. But um, So you got to spend a little money, but if you spend it and you know how to track it, you know what you're getting as a return. And so I, I'd like to take a minute to talk about tracking advertising. Mm -hmm. like, so you have the cost of advertising. Let's talk about a radio ad, for example. Um, my number one source is a sports talk radio station in Minneapolis. It's called KFAN. All the guys and the blockheads go there to talk about sports. Uh, it's great. It's one of my favorite stations. we got great local hosts. Um, we get 175 new clients a month from this radio station. I spend $18,000 a month to take over that station. I have the studio naming rights. I have at least two 60-second spots per hour. Um, I really got a great campaign because it's a great source for us. So I have the cost of the ad, $18,000, and I have the number of leads I get, 175. Mm -hmm. I'm going to divide those two, 18,000 divided by 175. I know that my cost per lead is $102.08. What does that mean to me? Well, now I know how much I'm paying for a phone call. Now, some people that would say that's a lot. Now, if you're selling dog food on pets.com and you're only getting a $28 sale, you can't pay that. We just learned there, right there. That's not a good advertisement for pets.com. It's too expensive. Mm -hmm. However, I'm in the real estate game and the lifetime value of my client, meaning the commissions I'll earn over the time spent with me is $18,204. So I'll pay $102 all day. In fact, I'll pay quadruple that all day to get a new client because my lifetime value is worth $18,204. Now that's just the napkin test. Now let's take it down a notch. Now you need to factor in your closing ratio, cost per sale. The first thing was cost per lead, CPL I call that. Yep. Then there's cost per sale, CPS. What is your closing ratio? So I paid $102.85 a lead, but I closed at 85%. So now I got to go back out and say uh, 175 times 80 percent. That means I got 140 clients actually. Now I know I take 18,000 and I divide that by 140. Now I know my cost per sale is 129 dollars. Okay, that still works. Now the last thing you want to do is figure out your cost of customer acquisition overall. What did the ad cost? What did your salesperson cost you? factor in the cost per sale and now you know exactly what each lead out the door as a client on the books costs you. Now you know your lifetime value of a client, 
Now you know your net margins. Okay. Now you know if that advertising's working for you or not. Uh, I didn't learn this on my own. I read about this online site called it was a pet store company that went out of business. Uh, they were backed by like a hundred million dollars in VC money. Uh, they spent on average forty-two dollars for a cost per lead, but their average sale was twenty-eight dollars a year. Oh. And they 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 could they went out of business. They couldn't acquire a customer cheap enough and get them to buy enough. You have to know these metrics on every source on every advertisement you do to determine if it's working well or not. Otherwise, you're just blind money. Uh, and so, not only does it take money to make money, you have to strategically uh, analyze it through analytics. I do that through tracking phone numbers, landing pages for domains, um, asking people, where did you hear about us? Asking them to choose a self-selected source. Uh, I won't let them get off the phone until you tell me, where did you hear about it? How did you call me? What prompted you to give me a call? And they may say, I heard you on three radio stations, but what prompted me to call? I forgot about all those radio spots. I went online and typed in, you know, rent my house, Minnesota, and you popped up. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I heard him on the radio. So now that's kind of convoluted. But I look at what prompted the action. Online did. Now, uh, to put this in perspective, my cost, of, my cost uh, per lead for TV is about $400. Radio, it's about $200. And on the Internet, pay-per-click, $60. So as you can imagine, I'm trying to maximize and throw as much money as I can at the internet, and I'm maxing out all my clicks and opportunities there. Then I'm maxing it out on radio, and I'm maxing it out on TV, and now that I know they're all work, I'll find my next medium. Guess what that is? Digital radio. I'm going to Pandora and iHeartRadio and Spotify and buying ads now because people want radio on demand, uh, and you can buy advertisements in those. So I'll find out soon enough. I just started this month on what that metrics look like. But it's very important that you analyze your advertising so you know at a granular level how well it's performing or not performing. Jesus, you're printing money with those numbers. Yeah, yes. it's not bad, right? <laughs> you can see why I retired. It's got good margins and why I can pay a lot for a customer. Now, at first, I, there was a source, and I'll tell you how I, I paid a price for this at one point, not knowing the data. There was this talk. There was a woman's radio station in Minnesota. It was a gossip station, uh, kind of like a TMZ of the radio, and uh, it produced a lot of leads. I get a hundred clients, a hundred leads a month, and by all perspective, that was a good source. But what I didn't have on any of my metrics was the cost per sale. What was the closing ratio? What I found is it had low quality leads. While I was getting lots of leads, only eighteen percent were converting, while everybody else was at eighty, seventy-five percent. I didn't know that, so I kept putting more money. Oh, look at all these leads I'm getting. Keep going. None of them were converting, so I was throwing a lot of bad money after it. If you don't know your numbers. You might be fooled to think it's working when it's not. It's really, really strong. I mean, you know, a lot of people talk about you know cost per lead, cost per acquisition, all these numbers, but no one really you know talked about it and showing how to calculate it. So, really, definitely appreciate that. You know, that's that's something that's a make or break for a business. No um, cool. So, you know, starting out, uh, going back to Renters Warehouse before you had the franchise, the franchises. Um, so, you know, what's one big struggle you faced while growing the business? Um. Capital, yeah, you know, um, when I started it, capital wasn't so easy to come by as I think it is now because a lot of people have taken attention to investing in businesses as a great investment, mm -hmm. uh, and I believe it to be true. And um, but when you're 21 and you got no experience and you're going around trying to get bank debt or a loan or a private equity guy to invest in you, good luck with that. It's tough unless you're in the software game and you got a very specific skill set like you're a programmer. It's very tough out there, um, and um, so 
that's why I started angel investing, right? I want to invest in those kids that are in similar positions as me, but give them their first 100000 or something to get them going. Mm-hmm. But uh, capital was tough for me. Uh, and so I lived off very little for a long time and I took, I could have made more, but I retained those profits and put them back into um, marketing and advertising because I was getting a great return because I knew that because of my metrics now. I, I could pay myself a hundred grand a year, I could pay myself 30 grand a year and take 70 and put it into advertising and turn it back into 210. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to take 70 and put it in to advertising and get 210K back. I'm going to do that instead. And that's what I did. So um, stay small. Stay agile, be smart. Um, those are some of the things that uh, I did well looking back on, but um, I had to learn that the hard way. So those are some of the struggles I learned. I found out that um, I'm not much of a book reader, but I found there was, and I'm, I'm now a book reader because I read a book uh, not long ago called Rework by Jason Fried and David Hansen. They own Basecamp and uh, High Rise. Those guys are awesome, um, but. Uh, I read their book, and it's an amazing book. It gave me a modern day's rework mentality of what it's like to be a business owner. They have chapters in there like pick a fight with your biggest competitor. Planning is guessing. Uh, Inspiration is perishable. Underdo the competition. Um, ASAP is poison. And my favorite one, be more like a drug dealer. Okay, what the hell does that mean? But they, they break it down, and that's it's now my business mantra. In fact, you saw me keep looking up. I have a poster in my wall that has all these phrases on it. Let's see it. It's my mantra now. <laughs> um, so read books. Uh, don't take on investors if you don't have to. Um, and bootstrap as long as you can because that's the best thing that happened to me was that the hard work up front turned out to be the best thing ever because now I don't have debt and I don't have investors in my business. Uh, and there's a lot more for me left over at the end. And all I had to do was work a little harder up front. Well, you're going to work your ass off in, up front anyway. Might as well work your ass off and keep all of your business so long as you can do that. So while money was my biggest problem, it was also the, the best thing that ever happened to me to not take it. That's where I was going with that. Other than that, the life of an entrepreneur, man, you're going to work day and night. If you, if you really are passionate about this business and you want it to go places really fast, you've got to be dedicated to it. You absolutely have to be passionate and dedicated and you'll find there's a lot of people with good ideas, and then you ask them, well, why don't you start it? They'll give you some excuse. And one of the excuse is they're not passionate or dedicated to it. If you believe it's that great, you'll do it. And if you're that dedicated to the good idea, you'll do it. But if you won't, there's something there in the back of your head telling you it's not that great yet, or you're not capable of taking it to the next level. And, um, while you don't have to have everything figured out, um, you just have to be dedicated and passionate to figure it out, and you will. Um, I didn't face a lot of struggles other than just hard work and lack of money. Um, but I think that's every entrepreneur. And you should expect that. Got it. Couldn't agree more. So was there at, was there any point in time where the company was on the brink of failure? or? Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, it wasn't, it wasn't Renter's Warehouse. It was, it was before Renter's Warehouse. Okay. In 2005, remember I started Renter's Warehouse in 2007. In 2005, I started a real estate company. Um, and it was, you know, prime market, right? 2005 was awesome for real estate. 2006, even half of 2006 was awesome. Some of the best we'll ever see. Um, I got into real estate and, uh, a lot of people were, you know, properties were appreciating at 10%, 15% a year. So even novice investors were buying properties, getting straw buyers and anybody they can to buy properties. At the time you could do a no doc loan. You could lie about your income and not prove anything and get a million dollar loan. 
that's what lending was like at the time. So everybody was doing that. Well, I found myself with um, a bunch of bad guys on my books, people who had manipulated mortgages, um, who had bought properties that shouldn't own properties, that aren't qualified to own properties. And so I found myself with property owners who couldn't afford to maintain the property. I had property owners who had violated law and committed mortgage fraud. I had all kinds of wrong clients on my books. And in my hunt to find and grow as fast as I can, I didn't really take too close of a look at that stuff. Well, when the market came crashing down, people had to be held accountable for what happened. And some of these investors and some of these people who were, you know, bought properties and then couldn't afford to maintain them put my company in a bad way. And um, I, 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 at one point, I was indicted uh, because I had all these people on my books. And they said, how can you be the manager but not have nothing to do with it? We later sorted that out. We had nothing to do with it. But it was embarrassing. Um, it was hard on the business losing clients. It was hard on the business because we had bad clients who weren't taking care of properties. Uh, and at the time, that was not what I set out to do. And I was thoroughly embarrassed. I was a young business owner. The market was collapsing. I was mainly doing real estate sales, not property management. And uh, I thought about moving. I thought about I, I didn't want to show my face in town anymore. I was embarrassed by my failure. Um, I was embarrassed that the market was changing and I didn't know what to do next. Um, and then it hit me. Every one of these people that are affected and hurting my business today are going to need help. They have, they're distressed. They can't sell loose too much if they did. They're going to need an alternative to selling in a down market. Otherwise, they're going to go into foreclosure. There's the aha moment. Why don't I just do strictly property management? I've been talking about it. Nobody does it. I can bring a value proposition to it. Uh, nobody's going to think I you know, failed because the market collapsed. Uh, I had these bad clients tonight. I'm emerging to help them out now. Uh, and so there was a time when I was so embarrassed I wanted to even leave the country. I just was I, I failed my first go at it. I was going to go get a job. I even thought about joining the Army. I was just I didn't know what to do. I failed. Um, but then I tried again, and it was my best hit yet. So um, that was my story. That, I remember having at the time, 2005, 2006, the company had, we had six Mercedes company cars for some of our top performers, big SUVs at 80,000 apiece. We were rolling in it. We were giving out great perks at the company, crash, all ends. And I got all these things I personally guaranteed. And I was not about to ruin my credit. So for the next couple of years starting a business, I was carrying all these company vehicles, all this massive overhead from another former business. And burying myself in debt. And, uh, well, not necessarily burying myself in debt. I had no income left over. Uh, I'd make 30 grand a year, but I was making 250, but I had 30K to spend. Mm -hmm. Everything else is in expenses. So I fought through it. I maintained my credit. I kept my vendor relationships and I formed a new company through the trials, tribulations, and it was my best hit yet. Uh, so when faced with adversity, I think I responded pretty good. But um, I definitely. Almost went another direction, that's for sure. Wow. Okay. Persistence is key, huh? Indeed. No question about it. Cool. So last few questions from my end. Um, <clears throat> so what's one piece of advice you'd give to your uh, not-so-far-away 25-year-old self? I get annoyed by all the people who have great ideas. Great ideas are worthless. They have no value until you can execute on them. And so as an angel investor, I get a lot of people come to me with ideas um, but no real plan to execute. It's, it's, it's not even worth the paper you wrote it on. Everybody's got a hundred of those good ideas, but the ability to execute and take it to the next level is another thing. But here's the thing. If you do have a good idea and you really do think it's worthy, worthy of your own money, even if it's only $1,000 you got, 
go to market. Give it a shot. If you're dedicated, passionate about it, and you really believe in it, you got to go. Too many people wait until they have it all worked out. Um, they have everything, you know, the website's done. I have the right amount of money. The timing in my life is appropriate. Everything has to be in perfect order. Well, that's never going to happen. It's not. You're never going to find the right time to start a business. It's a risk. You're risking everything to start a business. You're quitting your job. You're putting your family at risk. You're putting your money at risk. You're putting all your time into this. It's a risk, and you have to take it. Uh, and so if you believe in it, take the risk. If you don't and you're not capable of taking the risk, then throw that idea away or put it in a folder later and come back to it when you think it's appropriate. But get up and do. Go. Get started. And the way I start that with is imagine if you had a hot dog stand. You don't need to have the condiments and the, the, the freshest cart. Uh, you don't have to have fresh hot dogs flown in from wherever. Just start with a great hot dog. That's all you need, a hot dog and bun, some ketchup and mustard, and go to market. If you believe you have the best hot dog, just go out there and start with that. Sell more of your best seller before you get out and diversify and have condiments and sell a pretzel and some soda with it too. Forget all that. Go out and sell the shit out of some hot dogs. And prove your concept. Make some money. Be sure you're passionate about it. And then come back and say, all right, now can I sell pretzels? Uh, and maybe some soda too. Um, that's an analogy from the rework book. Um, and it really gave me some perspective that I didn't need to go out and create all these new programs. I did invent some programs last year, but six years into the business before I created my secondary programs, I've been selling more of my best seller, tenant placement and property man, before I came up with these other products. So don't be too quick to diversify. Go to market and just do, just start. And you don't have to have it all figured out, but what you do have to have, dedication and passion. Got it. Okay. <clears throat> and, you know, what's one productivity hack you could share with the audience? Productivity hack that goes with the audience. Um, I got to pick up my iPhone. I got too many. I narrow it down to one here. Let me see which one I'm, uh, I love the most. Um, huh. Easy. Dropbox. Uh, as an absentee business owner, the owner of multiple businesses, a guy who works from kind of anywhere. Uh, every file I have for every business is stored in the cloud and accessible on my iPhone, my iPad, my laptop, my desktop. People can interact with it. I can share things from it. I can share large files from it. Uh, I don't need paper. Uh, I love it. I absolutely love it. It's so affordable. Uh, you can link it into your desktop. Uh, I'm at home and I, I'm trying to log into something last night, uh, a password to one of our banks. I don't know it. I, I didn't have it. I just went on my Dropbox on my iPhone, looked up this little password spreadsheet we have there. There it is. Bam, got in two seconds. And uh, that would have made me require to go to the office the next day, ask my CFO, what's the password? He's got to look. No, I can help myself. I love um, cloud, cloud-based cloud um, storage. I think it's just revolutionized my business. In another facet, uh, we do inspections, uh, move in and move out. Mm -hmm. well, we have an app that actually takes video. So... If, uh, you know, there's a common dispute in rental housing of who damaged what and who's responsible for the damage. So when we move a tenant in, we say, hey, I'm with Eric, and there's a stain on the carpet. And there's Eric, and there's a stain. Now we know that you, we identified there was a stain when you moved in, and uh, you were there, and that's not your stain. Otherwise, we can show a video where, hey, <coughs> previously there was a stain, now there's not, mm -hmm. and now there is. There's a video proof. And what's neat about that is we can store all that in the cloud. My agents can go, a different agent can go to the move out inspection, grab it from the cloud, look at it and compare it and create a new one at the same time. Cloud storage is revolutionizing my business. Wow. Okay, cool. What's that, what's that app called? 
That's called uh, Snap Inspect. Snap Inspect. Got it. It's cool. not mine, but we have a private license that we've customized. Um, they're, I think the company is out of, uh, I think they're local. A um, bunch of young entrepreneurs uh, started a great app for the property management space, and we loved it so much we asked them to license a variation of it. Got it. All right, cool. I'll have to show my mom that one. Uh, mm -hmm. All right, so final question. You know, I know you just started reading again, you know, and, and you recommend a rework, but what's, what's another you know, must-read book you'd recommend to the audience? Uh, I got a few. Um, remote by Jason Fried and David Hansen. They show you how to become a great remote worker um, and how to be a remote property owner or a remote a business owner, how you can have remote employees. It's great about this new age of people working from home or working from anywhere. Um, I think it's a great book. Uh, both Rework and Remote will take you less than two hours to read. There's not a chapter in there over two or three pages. It's an awesome way to write a book. Um, the book that taught me how to organize my business at, from a small business to running it like a high, uh, like a Fortune 500 business is a book called uh, Traction by Gino Wickman. Um, Traction helps you create things like this. Uh, as you can see, this is called my scorecard. All the things here are all the key metrics I need to know in my business, and these are all the metrics that go along with it. So, as an absentee business owner, I can say I need to know if my business is going well or bad and I need to know there's 68 different metrics here that I need to know on a weekly basis to determine if my business is going well or not. This was taught to me by traction. So one of the things is there is uh, how, many, how many evictions do we have at Renters Worlds? How many deals, how many listings do we have? What's our average market time? Um, what's our closing ratio? These are numbers I have to have and I can tell if my business is going good or bad. Traction shows you how to organize your business from how to conduct good meetings, how to have goals, how to hold people accountable, how to have all these key metrics plucked out of your business so key players know if the business is going good or bad. Um, so got to read Traction. Now that's more of a, a textbook kind of read, but nonetheless uh, a great book. Um, and then uh, there's three books I want to recommend after that, all by the same author. Robert Greene, um, G-R-E-E-N-E. The 48 Laws of Power, the 33 law, uh, the art, uh, the art of seduction, and uh, the 33 Laws of uh, of War. You got to know these books, and it's all kind of business focused. You know, how do you gain power in business? There's the 48 Laws to live by. How do you seduce everyone you meet and make them become fans and advocates of you, your business, and friends of you forever? Art of seduction, and then the Art of War. When you're going to create enemies, you're going to have people attack you. You're going to have people who take you head on in your business, and you need to know how to you know, have a business war against them. And the art of war is uh, understanding principles of war um, is good for business. For example, um, I practice something that is kind of aggressive, management style. When somebody wages war against me or tries to attack me or my business, you're, you're attacking my business, my livelihood, 133 employees and their livelihood, and everything I've ever built. So you waged war on me when uh, there's a guy waging war on me in Minnesota, and he's he, he, it's not he's not going to come out well after the end of this, because when you wage war with me, I'm going to end the war, and I'm going to end it in a way that you never want to wage war with me again. Um, and so um, there's a there's a, a law in the 33 laws of war that says uh, if you must go to war, never go to war again. Uh, meaning uh, if you are induced into war. Make sure that uh, when you end the war that you've ended it so strongly that there's no chance that they'll ever come back from it. Look at um, World War I. Uh, Germany uh, lost to uh, the United Nations and the Treaty of Versailles. 
and how that treaty was so one-sided and basically just spanked Germany uh, of all their rights. You can't build a military, you owe us $80 billion, this, that, and another thing, and the hell with you, and, and we're, your country's going to go into turmoil because you waged war against the world. That's a practice of saying, hey, you waged war, you started this war, and you're never going to go to war again. Uh, in fact, that treaty was so powerful that Adolf Hitler, when he came to power, he was the only reason he was so upset with the world is because of the Treaty of Versailles, because it impoverished his company, his country, uh, and made Germany weak, and he couldn't stand that. Uh, so I believe in this principle. When you, you start a war with me, I'm going to end it, and I'm going to end it in a way that you never want to wage war with me again. So, um, you know, win the battle, win it big. So if somebody goes against you like this company is doing against me, I'm doubling down, I'm tripling down, I'm, I'm throwing out the propaganda, I'm taking them head on. And, uh, you know, like Rework says, pick a fight uh, with your biggest player. Um, they're saying wage a war. If you have a player in your space, go out and pick a fight with him, get it going. If you're better than him, get going and uh, prove it to the marketplace. Um, the art of, those books are just, they're good life principles, they're good business principles in general. And I've read every, there's about 10 books I've read and I just highly recommend five of them. Got it. All right, <clears throat> Brenton, super inspirational stuff. I think this is one of the best interviews we, we've had on the show. So oh, good, uh, definitely want to have you again on the, on the show sometime soon. But again, Anytime. Uh, Brenton Hayden from Winter, Renters Warehouse. And if you're an entrepreneur watching this, you know, freaking go check out one of his, his you know, buy one of his franchises. Look, can I give a couple shameless plugs? Absolutely. Uh, if you're interested in our franchise model, check out professionallandlords.com. That's where we talk about all of our opportunities and the markets are available. If you're interested in my property management services, I do got a uh, number of offices across the nation. Uh, you can go to renterswarehouse.com and just click on the markets we're in. And um, I'd love for everybody to follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Brenton Hayden, just B-R-E-N-T-O-N-H-A-Y-D-E-N. Uh, and uh, I'm most social on my LinkedIn page. So seek me out if you got questions, you got an investment you want me to look at. I don't respond to everybody, but I do read everything. So if you got something, uh, send me a message. Uh, let's connect on LinkedIn or Twitter, and uh, we can stay in touch with everybody. There you have it. Brenton, thanks so much for being on the show. Real pleasure, Eric. I'd love to come back again.